It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by one of our favorite reporters. It's Edward Isaac Dover, and he has a new book called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. I'm uh, you know, doing as well as can be for the easing of the pandemic. I'm looking forward to it being even more eased, but it's getting pretty easy, are, I guess. Do you, are you are able you to do camp- in-person book events yet? Is that a thing? Are we doing that yet? No, that's a good question. It's not a thing, uh, sadly. And yeah, but- <laughs> uh, I, hope, I hope by the fall, maybe, or, or the paperback edition next year. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm I'm about to do a paperback round of promo. Yeah. And so that was actually my question. It was a good question, Jess, because I was like, I wonder if I'm going to do- <laughs> gonna have to do that. I've been but maybe not a quite. from a chair in my house, uh, which is actually across the room from the chair that I'm currently sitting in. So that's my book tour, different chairs in the same room. <laughs> that's a good, th- I definitely, you get the comfy th- chair. I would recommend different chairs. Also, a lot of the drink that Jess recommends that you do for your throat because a lot podcast interviews, radio interviews for some reason really affects my throat more than any other thing. Um, and so the, what is it, Jess? It's water, lemon, apple cider vinegar, honey. And no lemon, apple cider vinegar and as much honey as you can take. Yeah. It, okay, it there's works. no lemon. I it works. Apple lemon. cider vinegar is not fun to drink, but man, if you have to get your throat right, <laughs> that is what to do. That's not why we had you on. We did not actually no, have you on. But I, but I like, but I like to give out tips that you give me. <laughs> <laughs> Pay it well, forward. Thanks. Okay. So, so this is one of those books that encapsulates, uh, I mean, it's, it's such a sprawling story. Like the story of the 2020 election is, is massive. When you just think about like, you, you need one of those game of Thrones style glossaries in the back just to keep the characters <laughs> and the houses straight. But like, so I guess I want to ask you one of the the really big questions, which is, did did Donald Trump lose or did Democrats win? Like, what is your sense of of how Democrats were able to pull it off? Was there was there something that they said that was unifying that worked or was it that America was just no, dear God, please get us out of this nightmare? Yeah, I think that is a central question, uh, not just from thinking about the book, but in thinking about what happens going forward here. When I set out to write the book, I signed a contract to write it in 2018. I didn't know who the Democratic nominee was going to be, and I certainly didn't know how the election was going to turn out. You look at what happened, Biden wins by 7 million votes. That seems like, wow, most votes in history. Donald Trump got the second most votes in history, right? You look at that if you switch 77,000 votes in four states combined, Donald Trump still would have won the Electoral College. You look at the fact that there was a complete reinvigoration of the grassroots in the Democratic Party and rethinking of what the Democratic Party maybe should stand for on a couple of key issues, but also that Joe Biden ran ahead of most Democratic candidates for Senate, House, governor for other races. Uh, all of that together means, like, I don't know, would, would Donald Trump have won re-election without the pandemic? There's a good reason to think that the answer could be yes. Uh, would another Democratic candidate have been able to beat him even with the pandemic? There's good reason to think maybe no, uh, but that's a lot of what I explore in the book. In mm-hmm. addition to thinking about things like 
Well, how is it that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both ran these two strong progressive candidates in a moment where there was a spike of progressive interest and neither of them became the nominee? And in fact, Warren came was far from being the nominee. And Sanders, though, there was a moment when it looked like he was close, was actually ended up being pretty far from being the nominee. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about your book is that you're writing it as we sort of lived it. Um, and also you're able to be up close to really the behind the scenes. I wrote a book way before pandemic uh, about the future of the Democratic Party. And in the, in, a, in a similar way, not knowing what the outcome of the primary was going to be, but just sort of looking at some of the fundamental um, metrics of like, who votes for Democrats and like where demographics are going um, and sort of doing it that way. The thing I find the most interesting about your analysis is how, how we sort of ended up in the same place, but like, you know how like there's that meme. It's like, you know, how goals are, how success really is. And people think it's a straight line, but it's like all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like we ended up at the same destination, sort of being like, well, this made, they made the most sense. If you think about it, Joe Biden does seem like the person that would win this primary, but it's not obvious when you look, you know, at the slate of candidates at the beginning, that that's going to be the outcome. Um, are there some of the characteristics that you sort of, um, saw in Joe Biden from the beginning of the primary that, you know, came out at certain moments, whether that be maybe like the announcement speech where he's talking about Charlottesville. Um, there were those points in the campaign which made me feel like he was going to win the nomination. Um, and some of those fundamental qualities about him, you can see them coming out in his presidency as well. So the question is, what in what are some of those things that you witness sort of close up in terms of how Joe Biden approached his run for president, how he navigated that primary where he was seen as very moderate and sort of um, the quote unquote safe choice. Um, and even some of the moments where he made mistakes, because we were talking about the women uh, earlier in the sh in the hour uh, made very few mistakes, actually. Um, and there actually were some moments where Joe Biden made very obvious mistakes, but yet recovered. Um, and just speak to what that sort of uh, the qualities that, that Joe Biden has that allowed that to happen. Well, like, I, as you're speaking, I was remembering I was uh, I spoke on a panel in I think it was September of 2019. And I said something I was talking about the primary campaign. And I said something like, I think a lot of people think it would be really strange if at the end of this whole process, you know, with all the candidates who were in at that yep. point, that uh, this might end with an old moderate white guy. And almost everybody in the room laughed uh, <laughs> because it didn't seem possible. Certainly at that point, Biden's campaign was not so well run. Uh, he was stumbling a lot on the stump. He was not drawing crowds. I think you're right when it comes to campaign operations. Uh, certainly Elizabeth Warren's campaign was, was much more on top of it uh, than, than Biden's. Uh, Buttigieg's campaign was much more on top of it. Uh, you go uh, down the list. Sanders' campaign was much more on top of it. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of campaigns. Uh, but your question is, is a really key one to understanding Biden and one that I try to trace the book, which is that he – no matter what else you have to say about Joe Biden, there is this 
fundamental sense he has in Broder's mind as being a good guy. Uh, and you see that come out of him in public, but I saw that come out of him in a lot of moments on the trail that I caught. Uh, there's a moment the night before the South Carolina primary where I was in the northern part of South Carolina at a college campus with him, and there's a woman waiting uh, to talk to him on the rope line. So like two weeks before the pandemic hits, he doesn't have Secret Service protection yet, so I could be really close up to them. And she was holding a, a handwritten note talking about her daughter who had a health problem and she clearly she uh, had was so nervous to talk about it that she had written it out one and the aides are encouraging her encouraging her to talk and she finally hands Biden the note and he holds it up and he looks and he reads it and she's crying and he says get my number to this person and maybe there's something I can do to help uh, and Look, not everybody has had that kind of close personal interaction with Biden, but I think that that story would not surprise most people because he does. That's how he connects with people on a visceral level. And I think when you look at all of these candidates who ran and and people who are successful in the presidential level, politics especially, it's connecting in their guts with people. Biden does that. By the way, Bernie Sanders does that, right? By Mm -hmm. the way, Donald Trump does that. And Obama did that. And there there is that Mm -hmm. necessity that people have. Uh, But I think that uh, and to go into one of the things that's traced in the book about the Warren campaign is there's a moment when she starts to surge in the spring of 2019. And Mm -hmm. it's when she's speaking very personally about uh, why she cares about childcare and why she cares about all these issues that are motivating her. And that's when she starts to really take off when it becomes just about the policy ideas and the plan. People like it, but they're not connecting in the same way. And ultimately she stumbles. I, I did want to ask you about Elizabeth Warren specifically because there's some there there are some some facts and some palace intrigue that you unearthed that I had not read before um, about Biden's consideration this very serious consideration of of her as a running mate. So I, I guess talk about talk about the relationship between those two campaigns and those two politicians a little bit. Yeah, Warren wanted to be the the vice president as soon as her campaign uh, stopped going. Uh, And one of the things that I get into the book is how she is stressing about how she makes sure that Biden is the nominee rather than Sanders. And she should I endorse Bernie Sanders so that I'll be there. Not not really because she believes that Sanders should be the nominee, but with this idea that she's going to be able to draw Sanders into endorsing Biden more quickly that way, or, or be the advocate for that among uh, right. the progressive supporters. Or does she endorse Biden to give the progressive stamp of approval to Biden? Or does she stay out? And she's talking about it. And there are all these conversations like that. She talks about it with Obama. Obama getting thinks that she's like overthinking it essentially is too many conversations uh and then when it comes to the running mate time she she had reached out to biden directly called him on his cell phone started talking about what to do about the pandemic uh, and they start really connecting on things and they start connecting also about warren's brother who died of covid very early out and there's this personal mm-hmm. uh, hook that goes in and uh, and he's really thinking about it. One of the things that ends up standing in her way is that the Biden team is a little concerned that she might be hard to manage as a vice president uh, because she has so many ideas and is really good at getting them done. And another thing is that they're concerned that Biden looks too old and they want a contrast on the, the old image. And they look at Warren and they think the two of them together doesn't give Biden that contrast as much as they want. 
I mean, honestly, that makes sense do, to me. Do, so it, it makes so much sense. Um, and is is was there any consideration of the fact that it would have been an all white ticket and that the That's party real? I mean, especially I mean, Joe Biden has obviously a strength with black voters in particular, but not so much with Latinx voters, AAPI voters. Um, and so there was a need. There was a weakness there that they had a, they had to address, which was, um, you know, getting that turnout at the level they needed of people of color. Was that was that part of the consideration also? It was part of the consideration. But and, and I think what's important to think about is that the running mate consideration changes as the circumstances changed over last summer. Right. When yeah. it begins, it's thinking about it's how can we unite the progressives uh, and the moderates in the party? Then as the coronavirus really settles in, it becomes how do we uh, connect with, uh, with people who are hurting in all sorts of ways and feel like there's a competency coming in. That's when Warren's chances really start to spike. Uh, but then, uh, obviously, at the end of May of last year and into June, is after Floyd is killed and Black Lives Matter uh, becomes such a, an important thing uh, for uh, for the country and certainly for the Democratic Party, then it shifts and there's this worry that, yes, two white candidates would be trouble. Amy Klobuchar, who was very much in consideration, uh, pulls herself out of the process and says, I think we should have a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself hurt Warren's chances, but uh, there there were other things moving there, and that's also when you see things like uh, Karen Bass, the congresswoman from from LA, her chances all of a sudden get mixed into uh, the, the process, uh, largely because they're looking for are there any other black candidates we should be thinking about? Susan Rice, mm-hmm. who'd been there all throughout, uh, now gets a, a much stronger look and is in the process through the end. And then, and Kamala Harris, obviously, is being considered all the way through, and that ends up being a time when her chances get stronger and stronger and stronger, and obviously she's taking the end. I wanted to ask about uh, another another story that you bring to light that I don't think we had heard before that actually takes place after the campaign, um, January 6th, the insurrection. Um, you had uh, an anecdote about Cory Booker, Senator Booker, that I had never heard before, and I feel like that man should get his due for it. So can can you can you tell us that story? Where was Cory Booker that day? What was going on there? Yeah, uh, well, Cory Booker is an interesting case through the book and somebody that I trace all through the process, why his campaign seemed like it would work and then why it didn't. And then I came back to him uh, after the riot happened. I was writing the, the crashing lots of uh, what's in the last, 50 pages of the book long after my book was supposed to be finished. Uh, and Booker tells me the story <laughs> yep, that made a revision there. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, tell you the, the book was supposed to be like in final draft on January 4th. And obviously things changed over the course of that week. Uh, <laughs> That's so uh, funny. And Sorry. I'm laughing because was, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. It was an intense couple of weeks for the country and for me as a writer. Uh, Booker is on the floor of the Senate uh, as the riot entered. The rioters enter the building, and uh, you know because the Senate's in session, they're doing the certification or the objections, and and um, people start to run out. And Booker has this moment, and he says to me, "Now I felt my toxic masculinity coming through." It's sort of a joke, but in sort of the way that Cory Booker talks. <laughs> I about love him. 
<laughs> Me too. And he, you know, remember, he was a football player. He's a big guy. Yep. And even though he talks yeah. about love all the time, yes. he says to me that he started looking around the room and eyeing which senators were older and would be most susceptible to attackers and prepares himself to have a physical fight with the rioters to who he was going to have to protect uh, among his colleagues. And then uh, they start evacuating the Senate floor, and he waits until he's the last person on the floor uh, <laughs> uh, to make sure yep. that nobody else is going to get left behind. And one of the things that struck me about that is, like, of course, as we're getting a lot of revisionist history, oh, it wasn't so bad, or they were there as tourists. Whatever. Think about that. That's a senator, United States senator standing there thinking he is going to have to have a fist fight to protect his many older colleagues because they could be run over or killed by these rioters. I mean, Mitch McConnell cannot run fast. Just, you know what I mean? Like, I, not, to, not to make too light of it, but like we're talking about 80-year-old men, right? Yeah. And, and so they have a lot of power, so we forget sometimes that they don't run fast. They cannot move fast. Like that. So, so part of, part of, you know, what he, he felt there was, you know, he's the younger, more uh, spry Senator who can help defend his colleagues. But think about that. Like, wow, he was the last one. And you know, Cory Booker ran a campaign yeah. on love. It's so funny. He's like, I'm ready to throw. I'm not, he like took his earrings off. He was ready. He was ready to go. Um, There's a story also about Lisa Blunt Rochester, the congresswoman from Delaware, who takes her member pin off. Also love her. That they're going to come kill right. members of Congress, but is also worried that if she's just a black woman in the Capitol, the police won't uh, protect her. So she has to hold it in her hand as a wow. decision so that they won't see her as a member of Congress. But if she needs help, she can just open up her hand and show her pin like that. That's what was going on that day. And these stories, that, again, yeah. I wasn't expecting a riot to be one of the ending things in the book, but um, it is there. And it really, I think, captures where we were as a country and where we are as a country and what we have not at all settled about what's going on. Where do you think fascinating we are stories. It's as a, a fascinating country. book. Do we have enough time for you I, to answer that question? Or is Hannah telling us to break? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. Hannah said no. Minutes. Hannah said no. <laughs> oh, but that means we. Uh, uh, that means you have to come back. Uh, that's... I don't know where we are. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a very quick and, and and I think that's the perfect answer. We don't know. Asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll just have to have you back because I think a lot more is going Absolutely. to happen just in the next three months in terms of grand juries and uh, commissions or Senate select committees. So it's going to be a lot happening. We'll have you back right. to answer to have it. The up, book is Battle for the Soul Inside the Democrats Campaign to Defeat Trump. And there is a lot of stuff in there. Even if you followed obsessively, you didn't know. So I learned new things this Thank morning you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Yes, me yes. too. Thanks for having me. Hope everybody thank you so much. Best of luck on your two-chair book tour. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.